All right, thank you, John and Barbara. Be turning all the way back to the book of Genesis, where Don started with us a few minutes ago. When we think about Enoch, who is our next person in Hebrews chapter 11, we only have one verse about him in Hebrews 11, but there are two other passages of scriptures that we read a few minutes ago that uh, mention or talk about Enoch, the one in Genesis 5, where a genealogy is given of the godly line of Seth, Adam's uh, other son, and then all the way back to Jude, where Jude, when he's prophesying of things to come, he quotes Enoch. And so they're kind of interesting passages. We're going to go uh, to those. The only other time the name Enoch even appears in our Bible is in Luke chapter 3, where he's giving his genealogy and uh, simply saying, uh, and Jared begat Enoch, and Enoch begat Methuselah, and that's about it. So he just passes his name by. So we have these three uh, mentions. Now, we have to think of Enoch a little bit and go way back there in our thinking. Remember that Abel was dead because uh, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. And so the first thing we learned in, in Hebrews 11 is that Cain had killed Abel. And Cain's line is mentioned in Genesis 4. Uh, you see names there, but those, that is not the godly line. We mentioned that uh, that line ceased at the flood of Noah because Noah and his family will come from this other line. So after Abel uh, dies in chapter 4 and verse 25, we see that Abraham has another son that they name Seth, and uh, Adam uh, was uh, 130 when he had Seth, just a young man. And uh, he began a line of believers. So the last verse of chapter 4 uh, says uh, that uh, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so that line that follows the next child of Adam and Eve, that is Seth, uh, become believers in the Lord all the way through uh, men like uh, uh uh, Enoch and uh, Noah and Methuselah and uh, people like that. Now, Enoch was the, uh, the seventh from Adam, we're told in the book of, of Jude. So uh, you may not count these in chapter 5, or maybe you have the names marked, but uh, if you go from uh, Adam all the way to Noah, who is mentioned in verse 29, you have 10 names, you have 10 generations. So Enoch is said to be, of course, the, the seventh. And uh, uh, these are just uh, young men who uh, walked with the Lord, you know, eight, 900 years old, something like that, not, not very much. Uh, and uh, Methuselah comes along uh, as the child, by the way, of Enoch. And evidently, if the, if the calculations of their ages are to be taken exactly, which I think in this chapter they should be, then Methuselah will die the year the flood comes. And so uh, he's kind of God's measuring rod uh, from this time to the flood. And he dies the year the flood begins. And that's with Noah, of course, the 10th. The, uh, so Enoch here is the great-grandfather of Noah. 
uh, as a matter of fact, he's the father of Methuselah. And that old line that says, you know, the, the oldest man that ever lived died before his father died. Uh, because uh, Methuselah was the oldest man, but his father was Enoch, who never died. So um, Enoch becomes one of, the two, one of two people in all of the Bible who never experienced death. And that, of course, is the unique thing about Enoch. And the other one was Elijah. And uh, Elijah was taken up to heaven like Enoch is taken to heaven, uh, even the Lord himself came to the earth to die for our sins. Uh, but these two men have never died. Um, reading old Matthew Henry, among other people that I read, because I, I like to read him, he, he, he said this. He said, uh, the, the accounts here run on for, uh, for several generations without anything remarkable or any variation, but of the names and numbers. But at length, there comes in one that must not be passed over so quickly, of whom special notice uh, must be taken, and that is Enoch, the seventh from Adam. The rest, we may suppose, did virtuously. I mean, they were good men, but he excelled them all and was the brightest star on the patriarchal age. This man that we're looking at, Enoch, because of what God did with him, because of how God blessed him. So we have here this genealogy. Don't, don't you love genealogies in the Bible? I know you do. Every time you're reading through in your Bible reading, you know, you get to those genealogies. Oh, boy, a genealogy. Let's read this with, real carefully, you know, slow down. Uh, it, it just becomes a list of names. But let me remind you, of course, that they are inspired also uh, every word and every letter of the genealogies. Why does God give us these? Why, why does he do it? To, to put you to sleep during your Bible reading? I, I don't think so. First of all, God does what he wants to do, and God put it in here because he wanted to put him in here. Uh, so we understand that. But also, uh, genealogies give us historical and chronological accuracy to the Bible so that we can go back and figure times and ages and know how long a person lived in many cases, uh, especially here where their years are actually given, uh, or simply the age in which they lived. That's important, and we'll see at the end of our study this morning that, that uh, the accuracy of the Scripture in these old times is important. But in, our, in the genealogy in, in Genesis chapter 5, there's also another reason why the genealogies are given, and that is the last words of each person are, and he died. So-and-so lived this long, did this and that, and he died. And God's judgment upon the sin of Adam and Eve and upon all of their posterity is seen in all the genealogies in that they have all died. And, of course, then we understand that whatever our genealogy is and whenever we live, we will end the same way. And they died. And remember, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Now, uniquely, of course, so far in history, God has only made two exceptions to that appointment. And that is Enoch and Elijah as, as we said, yet there's coming a time when God will make a grand exception to that rule when he takes his church out 
of the world all together in mass, and we all uh, escape death that way. We may be living at that time, or uh, when it comes, we may not be. But I think of Enoch and Elijah, and it's kind of unique when you think of, of those two men. Um, there's much less said about Enoch than about Elijah. You know, Elijah has chapters dedicated to him in the books of Kings and Chronicles of, of what he did, and yet Enoch seems to get the greater compliment. Uh, you don't find anything negative said about Enoch, but there's a lot of faults to Elijah, and you follow him through his life. He doubted here, and he was afraid here, and ran away here, and things like that, and yet both men have God's blessing upon them. As a matter of fact, it's Enoch of those two who finds his name in Hebrews 11, not Elijah. He's not even mentioned in Hebrews 11, but Elijah gets picked as the name of the forerunner of Messiah himself, who gets that honor of being the forerunner of Messiah. So these two men are great. So we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to look at three things here, uh, and you'll look with me, of uh, specific things that are said about Enoch, and I think we need to know these, and they'll be a blessing. Number one, is that Enoch walked with God. And, and that's the statement here in, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 through 24. Don read to us a minute ago. Twice it is said here, verse 22, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. And in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Now, everyone else in the, in the genealogy, it says, And so-and-so lived... So-and-so lived, and it gives this information about him, and he died. But of Enoch, though he lived, it also says, and he walked with God. By the way, also in chapter 6 and verse 9, maybe on the same page of your Bible, you'll find that statement again about Noah. Noah walked with God. And so God, uh, of course, blessed and, and used Noah. So let me, let me just say a couple things about Enoch in this passage. Number one is that Enoch was a young man. I mean, he, di he died a young man before old age. He died only at 365 years old. <laughs> and in those days, that's a young man. I mean, he had a whole, his whole life ahead of him at 365. You know, now I'm, I'm just past 65 and uh, I don't want to live to 365, <laughs> you know. I don't want to live that long. But obviously, uh, even at 365 years old, he was, he was still a young man. Consider this, it, it, as you look at these pages, it, his father was named Jared. In the verses before, his father's name's Jared. Jared lived 962 years. 962 years. And his son is Methuselah, who lived 969 years. The two longest living human beings that have ever walked on the earth were on each side of little young Enoch. So 962, 969, and in between, you have Enoch, who only lived 365 years. Just a young man. Because you have in this list uh, Adam, 930. Seth, 912. Enos, 815. He died early. Canaan, 840. Mahalaleel, 
8.30. And then Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, 777, and Noah, 950. So uh, pretty good years to be alive. You know, you could, you could uh, live a long time. By the way, you and I get to live someday in, in resurrected, uh, incorruptible bodies for a thousand years on the earth. So we're going to beat them all one day. So n never fret about that. Uh, my old seminary uh, president, Dr. Clearwaters, uh, the pastor of Fourth Baptist Church in Minneapolis, still a going church and a going seminary, in, his, in the biography of his life, in the autobiography, he talked about in the first part of the 20th century when he was growing up, uh, his church always heard some of the greatest preachers of the day, and they often stayed in his home. And when he was just a boy, and he heard some of the great preachers from the turn of the century, and uh, in that book, he, he uses the line here when, uh, from Genesis 6 where he says, there were giants in the earth in those days. <laughs> you know, those great preachers that were early called fundamentalists, there were giants in the earth in those days. And um, there were in these days, though, uh, obviously in chapter 6, you're talking about physical giants, but these were giants of the faith. And that's why God gives them this kind of room and this kind of uh, uh, compliment in this chapter. And by the way, when Enoch is living and is translated, all, there are ten, from Adam to Noah, there are ten names here, and they are all alive at the time that he is alive, except... That, that Adam died 57 years before, and Noah won't be born until 69 years after. So at the time that he's walking with God and is translated, eight out of ten of these men are alive. Talk about giants in the earth in those days and people around you to encourage you, and yet it's this young man, young man, <laughs> who walks with God. Always remember that, young people. Uh, John said, you know, your fathers, yes, have known him from the beginning, but young men, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And that's the way it was with this man, too. So, by the way, we're told here that, that Enoch was 65 when, he, when his wife gave birth to Methuselah. So at 65 years old, Methuselah is born, and then for 300 more years after that, uh, verse 22, he walked with God. It, now, you could read into that, and I think probably so, that that doesn't mean, we're not saying Enoch was a perfect person, sinless, or anything like that. I mean, Elijah wasn't either. But for these first 65 years, you have his growing period, he gets married, he has a family, and, uh, and then it says when he had Methuselah for 300 years, he walked with God. If, if somebody said about us, for three years we walked with God, we'd be happy. 300 years he walked with God. It could be that Methuselah was God's yardstick to the flood and that God had showed that to Enoch, and that was part of the reason why Enoch believed God in, in Hebrews 11 and walked with God for the rest of his life for these 300 years. So, secondly, he walked with God, and, that, and, and that's the analogy that we have here, and it's a good analogy. All throughout the Scripture, you will find over and over again that analogy of walking 
being described of our relationship with God. We have to walk with God. It's a great thing when you think about walking. Uh, you can't walk too fast. You can't walk too slow. You got to keep your balance. You got to look ahead, not behind. You all of the things that that go along with walking uh, describe our walk with God, and in a lot of ways, it, it is. Let me let me uh, say four things about this walk with God. Number one, it infers or implies reconciliation. That is, he has to be a man of faith, and we're told that in Hebrews 11. Uh, he surely was a man of faith. Amos the prophet will say, can two walk together except they be agreed? And so for us to walk with God, we have to, ha we have to be reconciled to him. An unbeliever walks with himself in this world, not with God. Though God is there and God is omnipresent and so forth, but a person who has not placed their faith in, in uh, salvation through, through Christ walks by himself, not with God. But Enoch walked with God because there, there had been this reconciliation of his sinful past with God. And secondly, I think walking with God implies that a heavenly-mindedness Enoch's mind was where God's mind was. Enoch, uh, his, his mind was already in heaven 300 years before he got there. That's what he loved. That's where he thought. Whatever God thought, that's what he thought. And so thirdly, walking with God implies a love for God with our whole being. If we're going to walk with God, we have to love God. But that is not as easy as, that, as it is to make that statement. To love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, Jesus said. Do you love what God loves? That's the question. To love God means I love everything he loves and I hate everything he hates, which is sin. And I, I want to think like he thinks. If he loves this, that's what I love. And so that's why the Bible can command us to keep his commandments and keep his laws because everything that God said is what he loves. He wants it that way. That's the way he thinks. And for us to love God would mean we are never contrary to anything he has ever said, whether negative or positive. Whatever God has expressed, he loves, therefore we love it. That's walking with God. And it's a challenge for any of us because we're all sinners too, and our human nature does not really want to go that way. And even after we are saved, we retain that old nature who all the time is pulling at us, and we have to stop and say, now, wait a minute, God doesn't love that, and neither do I. Loving God, walking with God. And then lastly, God took him. That's what is expressed here in verse 24 at the end, that expression that will be elaborated on in, in Hebrews 11. But God took him, took him up, took him away. If, if I can quote Matthew Henry one more time, he said, God often takes those soonest whom he loves best. And the time they lose on earth is gained in heaven to their unspeakable advantage. <laughs> now, that's his opinion. I mean, God left uh, Noah on earth for 950 years, and I think God loved Noah too, you know. I, I, but but uh, it's kind of unique that way. 
I have used this illustration. I know I've told it to you before, but I'll say it here. Uh, I've used this illustration often at, at funerals. But here's a man that walked with God, and I don't know how that happened. I can picture Adam walking with God in the garden as he appeared to Adam and so forth. I'm not sure exactly how or where Enoch and God walked together or if they literally walked and talked with one another, but the old story goes that they were out walking along the Milky Way. Enoch was walking with God beyond the things of this earth, and God said to him one day, Enoch, you know, it's closer to my house than it is to yours. Come on home with me. And so he just took him home. Uh, and, and basically, that's what happened one day. God just took him, it says, took him on home. So Enoch walked with God, something that we ought to understand and, and strive to understand and more and more in our life as much as we can with the years that we have left, walk with God. Secondly, let's go all the way back now to Hebrews. So uh, we'll go uh, clear to our New Testament and, and toward the second half of it, to Hebrews 11. And we come to the second thing that's, that we learn about Enoch, and that is that Enoch pleased God. So one verse, verse 5 of Hebrews 11, by faith Enoch, now he says, was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. But notice this, for before his translation, the third time that word is mentioned, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So let me take that thought first, for or because, the, the whole reason why he took Enoch off the earth, like we read about back in Genesis, the whole reason he did it is for this reason. He had a testimony that he pleased God. Now, surely a man that walks with God pleases God, right? And vice versa. Uh, how else could you be pleasing to God if you didn't walk with him? So he had this testimony I think it's also interesting that he says right before that, that Enoch was not found. I take it that that means they went looking for him. <laughs> Have you seen Enoch today? No. Where is that boy? He's always running off, you know. Uh, he's probably out on the field, uh, you, you know, walking around again. But they went looking for him. They didn't find him. You know, there's an interesting passage about Elijah when they went looking for Elijah. Back in 2 Kings chapter 2, you have, as soon as the book of 2 Kings begins, chapter 1, you have, that, you have that translation of Elijah taken up to heaven in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. Uh, the angels came and got him and took him to heaven, uh, you know, like the beggar uh, that, that uh, was taken to heaven by the angels. And so, you have, what happened there is Elisha, the younger prophet, went across Jordan with Elijah, and the, the other prophets, there were 50 of them, had to stay uh, back on the, on the uh, western side. Elisha goes across the Jordan with him, and Elisha sees Elijah taken up to heaven. And he picks up his mantle that fell to him. He goes back, smites the waters. The waters part again. He goes back across. And uh, now the 50 prophets that were over there saying, what happened? Where's Elijah? Let me read it to you. 2 Kings 2.16. They said unto him, they said to Elisha, 
Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Okay, send them. They sent therefore 50 men, and they sought three days and found him not. Same expression that we have here. And Elisha says, didn't I tell you not to go? <laughs> it's a fool's errand, I'm telling you. You're not going to find him, because I know where he went. But interesting that uh, this kind of thing that happened here, of course, is so unusual. Everybody wants to say, what happened? Don't you think that when the church is raptured out, people are going to say, Let's go find them. Where did they go? Where did dad go? Where did mom go? Where did grandma and grandpa go? And a lot of people looking for people who will have disappeared, and they won't find them. Now, Elijah had enemies, Ahab and Jezebel especially, and the prophets of Baal, and they probably sought him all the time. I imagine that Enoch even had enemies. I mean, when we read Jude in a few minutes, and you read how Jude or, or how Enoch prophesied to the sinners of his day, no doubt he had enemies. Maybe they were even looking for him too. I'm not sure. But we're also told in this testimony, of course, that he pleased God. At the end of verse 5, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And that's the whole reason we have verse 6 in the passage. Remember when we started studying this chapter, we read the first three verses about faith, and then we skipped to verse 6, which says, without faith it's impossible to please him, that is God. He that cometh to him must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Why is that verse there? Because of Enoch. Enoch pleased God, and without faith you can't do that. Isn't that interesting? I mean, God loves the world, and he gave his son to die for the world. But our sin separates us from God, and God cannot be pleased. That is, he cannot accept us to salvation without faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so even though people may be good people, sweet people, people you love too, they cannot please God without that faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously a universal truth in the Scripture. And so you have it here. We have to walk by faith. We have to be heavenly-minded by faith like Enoch was. But let's also then notice, secondly, in Enoch pleasing God, that because of that he was translated. I mean, it says here, he was translated, he was translated, he was translated three times because he had this testimony that he pleased God. And so we know he was translated. Now, it might be interesting to you to know that now that we're in the New Testament, we have a Greek word here, is not the same Greek word that you have everywhere else in the New Testament that describes the rapture. That word in 1 Thessalonians 4 and everything, we're caught up together with them to meet, the to meet the Lord in the air. That word certainly speaks of being caught up, taken right off the earth. Uh, this one is a little different. This one means to, to be set over, set over here, 
to be removed from this place to that place, to be transported. I mean, we could say it's a synonym, and, and really it is, but, but my point is it's not the exact same word. Now, back in Genesis, all we were told about Enoch is God took him. <laughs> and that's a simple expression, God took him. Where did he take him? <laughs> well, he took him to be with himself, of course, but how and how you would describe that, I don't know. And, and here we're told that he was not found. Why not? What happened there? And so we have, it's interesting in the Bible, isn't it, that we have certain examples of people that this kind of thing happened to them, if you remember. As a matter of fact, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, Elijah, by the way, was taken up like Enoch is, but uh, Ezekiel was taken up and set somewhere else. Philip, remember, the evangelist, God pulled him out, took him over here, and set him down over here somewhere. And you have Paul, who got to go to the third heaven, but come back down. You had John, who was taken up to see the revelation, came back down. Jesus himself ascended to heaven and stayed there. And, uh, you know, in, in Ezekiel, by the way, I went back and looked at, at, at these verses about Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3 says, Then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from this place. And verse 14, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and heat of the Spirit. The reason I mention all of that is for this reason. God, God kind of does what he wants with our body and our soul, our body and our spirit, if you will. In, in, with with uh, uh, those men who went up and came back, obviously their body was not changed, but somehow their body, Paul and John, Paul says, I don't know if I went in the body or not. But John evidently did and came back. God preserved him, let him go out of the atmosphere of this earth and come back in body and spirit. He's alive and died sometime later. And here's uh, Ezekiel who experienced the same thing. But with, with these two men, they, they experienced something like our rapture where they were taken up in body. And what happened to that body? It had to be changed. You remember the apostle says to us, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And so our body will be made uh, to a glorious body. Now, if you die and your body's put in the, in the dirt, dust shall return unto the earth from which it was, but the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. When your body goes into the ground, it goes back to dust until resurrection day. So at resurrection day, even at our rapture, if, you, if you've been dead by then, then your body's brought out of the grave and it's already ready for heaven. I mean, it's, it's a new body, a resurrected body. But when we, if we're alive at the rapture, our body starts to rise and it has to be changed. It has to be changed into a body that can live in that eternal uh, aspect. That's evidently what happened to both Enoch and Elijah. They got that heavenly body and yet I can't tell you why that is and, and where, why we have two Old Testament saints in heaven with translated bodies when all the other Old Testament saints, their bodies are still in the grave. It's a mystery. 
But, but I'm just saying God can do with it what he wants. And so one day, folks, we're going to be raptured. And when we read these kinds of things in the Scripture, should we doubt it? Should we say, well, I don't know if God can do that. I don't know how God could take some people out of the grave and put their bodies together again. I don't know how people who are living can, can go up into the atmosphere and their body be changed. God has already done all of this, is the point. God has no problem with any of it, and he will do it with us. My question, rather, would be, how can God rapture me without me dying? Not only me, but all of Christians living at that moment will be changed. Are you, like, are you as godly as Enoch? Do you, can you walk with God for 300 years? Not me. Are you an Elijah, a prophet like Elijah? No. So how do you deserve it? How do you deserve going to heaven like Elijah or Enoch? And yet, you would if you're alive at that time. And of course, the startling answer to that is this. Because at your salvation, God dressed you in Christ's righteousness so that his whole church Everyone who has been saved in this generation, though, though you're not perfect here on this earth, God has made you perfect in Christ and can take us all to heaven like he took Enoch and Elijah. As a matter of fact, even greater than that because we have the righteousness of Christ. Let me move on to our last point. Enoch walked with God and secondly, please God. But let's go back to the little book of Jude, which stands just before the book of Revelation. And I say Enoch prophesied, too, of God. And so we have in these two verses, as, as was read a, a, a little bit ago, he's the seventh from Adam, and verse 14, he prophesied of these. Now, uh, way back then, before there was a Bible, I mean, Moses was the first one to write Scripture, and that wasn't until the 1400s B.C., so Enoch is long before that, and yet... If he's prophesying, this is a gift from God that God gave men of the Old Testament so they could speak infallibly whatever God has told them to speak. And uh, he, Enoch, was a preacher of righteousness, like Noah is said to be a preacher of righteousness. And so we have a quotation here from the preaching that Enoch did. So look at it. Uh, in verse 14, he prophesied of these. By the way, Enoch is really letting, <laughs> letting them have it, <laughs> uh, the sinners of his day in the first century. It's a scathing book about this. That's why, by the way, verse 2 of Jude, did I say Enoch? I meant Jude. The first, the, verse 2 of Jude, he says, mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. That's not a usual greeting. <laughs> it's usually uh, peace and love or something like that. He says, mercy on you for what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> You're going to need God's mercy when I get done with you. I mean, that's how I read it. So he's prophesied of these saying, here's the quote, verse 14, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What do you think his favorite word is? Ungodly. <laughs> and he's, 
and he's speaking of Enoch is preaching in his day and what days were they in Enoch's day the days before the flood right those days before God will flood the earth these great men were preaching about the sins of their day and then Jude is going to apply those words to the second coming of Christ now, what's interesting also is, and maybe you know this, is that Jude quotes a book here, and it's, it's an apocryphal book called the Book of Enoch. Now, that really causes some people some problems, and yet we have the Book of Enoch. It's not in the Bible. It's not an inspired book, but that writer actually did write down what Enoch had said, and now Jude, under inspiration, is going to quote that apocryphal book. That sound crazy to you? Let me give you Linsky's uh, conclusion. I think this is good. Those who feel that Jude had only the book of Enoch and say apocryphal source, legend, at least imply it's not trustworthy. Then he says this, we who believe that Jude was inspired, that Paul was inspired, etc., know that the Holy Spirit guarded them against stating anything of any kind that was not true or not reliable. So even though these words find themselves into a non-biblical book, Jude assures us that Enoch really did say this, and he quotes it under inspiration from God. And it becomes part of God's inspired word here in this book. All right. I'm saying two things to you from Enoch in, in the book of Jude. Number one, the old Bible is accurate. We can say this is what Enoch said. And we go way back before Moses. We go before Abraham. We go before Noah. We go way back into this age, and we can say this is what Enoch preached. The Bible's accurate. If the Bible can be accurate about what those men said way back then, how much more Abraham, how much more Moses, how much more Paul and John and Peter and so forth. But the second thing I'll say is that this old book is relevant <laughs> because here is Jude bringing these old, old wor uh, words forward to his day and applying them to his day. These men have crept in unawares into your church. They eat with you without shame. They are clouds without water, carried about of winds, and so forth. That's who these people are. Let me quote, let me quote uh, Enoch to you, because the Bible is still relevant. And any time God has spoken things like this, it is relevant to us. Let me ask you this. What's relevant today? It's a big question in the church, isn't it? What's relevant today? And we read that we must, uh, we, we must do this or do that in our church or we won't be relevant. Is relevant, is being relevant conforming to what the world wants or is being relevant saying what God wants you to say? Wouldn't being relevant in any generation in which we live be Say what God wants you to say and be what God wants you to be. There couldn't be anything more relevant than that. If you go to the doctor because you have the flu, you say, give me something that's relevant. <laughs> he says, well, I'm going to give you a shot and you aren't going to like it. 
I'm going to give you this medicine and it may make you feel a little woozy. And you say, if that's relevant to my flu, give it to me. So what's relevant in our day? Pleasing everybody and making everybody happy or giving people what God has said? Well, Jude evidently believed, I need to give them what God has said. And he quotes this old man, this, this boy, <laughs> Enoch, and he quotes him. And that is relevant. Now, uh, Enoch, it, it, you know, understand if you can get that timeline in your head. Jude is writing in the first century. He's quoting a man from 4,000 years before, and he's applying it to the second coming of Christ, which is yet in our future 2,000 years afterwards. The Bible's relevant to all of it and relevant to every age. If God has said it, that's exactly the way it is. So like we learned of Abel, he being dead yet speaketh, uh, the same, the same with, with Enoch. He's dead, but he is still speaking to us. And no wonder, because as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus said. And so if, if Enoch is applicable and relevant to the days before the flood, he is certainly applicable and relevant to the days in which we live. And so that's Enoch. I hope we learn from it that we can walk with God, we can please God, and we can prophesy about God. May I, I want to end with a, with a personal note or, or illustration that I think, I think applies here. And it's just kind of something that happened to me yesterday, if you will. I'll take a few minutes with this. Um, I graduated from high school in 1968. Uh, you know, I was just a young man like Enoch at 18, which most of you graduate from high school at 18. Well, this is 2018, which means this summer is my 50th high school reunion. And there, so, so I, was the, I was the high school class president, and I have never organized anything. So if, they, young, if anyone ever asks you to be the class president, decline right away, never accept it. Anyway, so... A friend of mine found me on Facebook or wherever and said, hey, there's where you are. I wondered if it was you, and we're having a reunion, you know, this year. Can we get your information? I want to send you, I, sure, send it to me. And I thought, maybe I'll go. I, I mean, I had a witness to my class when I was a junior and senior in high school. I went to the 20th one, and it wasn't worth going to. But a lot of people came up to me and said, I just want to know one thing. Are you still... A preacher and I said yes good that's all I want to know <laughs> that was that was at the 20th one so I thought I want to go back to the 50th one you know say the same thing well it, well, it so happened that I got the card in the mail and I can't go because of a conflict of schedule it's going to be when I go to Ontario you know to Canada each summer to work at that camp it's the same time so I can't go so this fellow's name's Chip Newhart Chip Harold actually but we always called him Chip and uh, he and I were good friends. We went to McGuffey Elementary School together and then to Talawanda High School. It's an Indian name in Oxford, Ohio. So uh, Chip uh, uh, sent me notes about it. And so when I realized I couldn't go, I, I wrote him an email and just explained to him I had this conflict, I can't come. Now, he writes back and he said, I was out walking Thursday, remembering our McGuffey and Talawanda friends. I especially remember all of our sports friends, football and track particularly. 
Then he said this to me. Now, you remember, I've told you often that I grew up going to a large church in Cincinnati. It was called Landmark Baptist Temple. 10,000 people in church as a teenager when I was in high school. So Chip says this, do you remember taking us to Landmark Baptist Temple? Because I had taken him to church 50 years ago. I had forgotten about it. Do you remember taking us to Landmark Baptist Temple? Every, and then he says, everyone was asked to raise their hand during a prayer if they were saved. <laughs> he says, as a good Presbyterian, I did not know what that meant. Three older gentlemen immediately came up to me to, quote, encourage me in my faith, which I remember they actually prayed with him. He says, that scared the heck out of me. <laughs> this is Chip. That scared the heck out of me. I think I was in eighth grade. Actually, we were, we were seniors in high school. We got that wrong. Then he says this, every Baptist church I visited after that saw me quickly raise my hand. <laughs> And he said, I've told that story many times. I read that and I said, that's a blessing to my heart. You forget that you, you've put somebody under the sound of the gospel and 50 years later they are reminding you of that conviction they felt when, they, when that thing happened to them. And I thought, How, what a blessing. As a matter of fact, I wrote him back and I said, not only that, I remember it. And I remember other football players on our team that went with us and a, and a boy named Tom Hoskins that we called Haas. I've told this story before. Uh, he also raised his hand, went forward, got saved. He's a big guy, big tackle on the football team, a shot putter on the track team. And he came up to me and put his arm around me in church and said, said, Rick, if anybody ever makes fun of you again, you just tell me and I'll beat him up. <laughs> and I believe he would. <laughs> and he could, no doubt. So, yeah, I remember that time. And what a blessing that is. And so I just wonder, you know, when, when Jude quotes Enoch and says, here's what he said, that'll stay with you. If God's word can stay with a boy like that for 50 years and without any prompting just say, do you remember that? I remember it was like yesterday, scared me to death. I believe, if I remember right, that Chip made a profession of faith, and I hope that it was true. And I hope that what he's saying here is a testimony of his faith. That's a great thing. I'm, I'm glad, and I hope that's true. But, you know, it was also 50 years ago, was a little more straightforward day in church. Those of you who were there, you remember those long invitations, don't you? You remember, raise your hand if you're saved. Raise your hand if you're not. Raise your hand. You know, stand up, sit down, stand up. Let's sing the 50th verse of Just As I Am. You know, you remember those days because it was, it, it was a much more straightforward day than what maybe our generation likes to handle very easily. But that's what it was. So we don't, I know we don't do it the same way even in our invitations today, but if I ask you right now, if you know the Lord as your Savior, could you raise your hand and say, yes, I know him as my Savior? But if I said to you, do you have any doubt? Would you like me to pray for you because you don't know the Lord as Savior? Would you have to raise your hand and say, pray for me, I don't know the Lord as Savior? And then let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and convict you of what you need convicted of. I hope that God does that every time we hear the word and every time the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Now, stand up with me, if you will. Thank you for letting me give that personal note, because yesterday that was a blessing to me.
I just hope that the words from Enoch in the Bible can be a similar blessing. Let's bow our heads. And while no one is looking around, let me just ask you, do you know the Lord as Savior? Do you know that you have received him and that he lives in your heart? Without a doubt, you could raise your hand and say, yep, that's me. Or would you have to say today, I don't know where I would go if I died. I don't know if I am saved or not. If that's your case, if that's where you are, you ought to take care of that today like Chip did, like Tom Hoskins did, and those guys when they heard the gospel, because your eternal soul depends on it. Now, Father, thank you for the words from your scripture. Thank you for the words from Enoch. Thank you, Father, for preserving these things for us, because it does still speak to our hearts. And as it was in the days of Noah, way back then, we know it's so in our day before the coming of the Son of Man. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that could not say, yes, I know Christ as Savior, that they would make a move now to accept him as Christ, uh, as Savior, before it's too late. And so, Father, bless in that. And then, Father, as we have been encouraged by the words of Enoch, as we've been encouraged to be witnesses in our time, help us with that. And, oh, Father, we would desire to walk with you. We would desire to please you. So help us, Father, to understand that and do it and to please you and to walk with you. So speak to our hearts in these things, and may your will be done. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.